All right, if you want to come in, uh, grab a seat, open up to Luke chapter 2. We've been going through this Advent series, preparing our hearts for Christmas. And Advent is this Latin word that means visitation or coming. And uh, it's this kind of holy anticipation of, of God coming into, this, into the world. And uh, it's... it's it, it, every, every year we, we come back to this moment where we, we celebrate this, this story that we're a part of, this gospel story that God loved us so much that he comes into this world, reveals what he is like to us, uh, reveals the way of Jesus, and uh, this is the story, the reason that we are here and gathered today. Um, it's a sacred story. And we've been looking at uh, Luke's kind of account of this story, and I want to open up to Luke chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 8 through 11 today. You can read it with me. It says, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he is the Messiah, the Lord. It's a familiar passage, and it's a passage that we've been kind of reading through. When you hear these words, uh, if you grew up uh, with this story, it's probably nostalgic. Maybe you're hearing it for the first time, and it's kind of an odd language that's being used. But good news of great joy for all people. If we want to know what the Christmas story is, those, kind of, that phrase can pretty much sum it up. Good news of great joy for all people. The last couple of weeks, we've uh, talked about some of the themes that come out of this story, the, the one of hope, uh, the idea of, that hope is this holy anticipation that gives us power in the present moment as we, as we travel through life circumstances. We have hope because of this story. We talked about peace last week and how uh, peace is this kind of harmony and flourishing with God, with ourselves, with others. The peace that comes uh, with Christmas, peace enters the world and it changes how we live in this world. And then today I want to talk about this topic of joy, great joy with this Advent season. Today we read the, the joy candle and we lit the pink one. For some reason, joy is the pink candle. I'm not sure why, uh, but it is. So, uh, But, but what, is, what is this kind of joy that is, is, is talked about here in Scripture? What does it mean? Uh, joy, if we, we look kind of in the original language, um, what we find is it's, it's this word that is Greek. It's the word kara. It means cheerfulness or calm. Uh, it, it's, a, it's an exceeding delight in, in the things of this life. It's an exceeding delight. Um, throughout Scripture, we find that the source of joy is God. Ecclesiastes 2 talks about this, how the source of joy is God's presence in our life. Which means joy is, is something that is, has an eternal element to it. Joy is different than happiness. It's, happiness is, is part of joy, but, but it's not the fullness of joy. Joy is more than just happiness. Happiness comes from that root word hap, which means chance. Oftentimes we're happy because of something that has happened in our life. Uh, I was happy the sun's won the other night. That doesn't happen very often. Like, there, there, there's circumstances that, that, that create happiness for us. So the source for happiness might be circumstances, might be a person, a relationship, might be a job. Uh, but the difference with joy is joy, if, if the source of joy is God, uh, and God is eternal, and God is everywhere, 
That means uh, when the source of happiness is circumstances, oftentimes when that source changes or moves, the happiness is lost. But joy is something that transcends happiness because the source is, is from this eternal being, God. And so it's possible to, you, you may not be happy, but you, can, you still have this, this joyful, there's something inside of you, there's this, this, this feeling of, of delight in the world because your source is from something that is unchangeable, unshakable, and eternal. In the Old Testament, uh, the source uh, of joy was brought to God's people uh, when God did something that they had been waiting for and anticipating. We find that God's people are, are joyful when he shows up and he delivers them, whether it's when they're crying out in Egypt, whether they're, uh, they're, they've been conquered by the Babylonians. There, there's times where God shows up and they're crying out to God and then he delivers them. But here we have joy in the New Testament. And I love it what the, the, the scholar N.T. Wright says about this kind of joy that's not just happiness. He says, the joy we see in the Gospels is thus not simply the natural human delight in times of healing and reconciliation, though it is that as well. It is the fresh instantiation in a new messianic mode of the joy expressed in the Old Testament and elsewhere. The joy of discovering that Israel's God was at last doing the thing he had promised, rescuing the people from their exile and providing forgiveness, restoration, and new life. And it is the joy to be experienced in the fresh presence of God. Not now, after all, in the rebuilt temple, but in the person and actions of Jesus. And also in the fresh act of God rescuing people, not from Egypt or Babylon, but from death itself. Christ comes into the world and brings joy. This thing that conquers death itself. John the Baptist talks about joy, this idea of joy, and he gets into this, this, this discussion in John chapter 3, verse 29, and they're kind of trying to figure out like, who John the Baptist is and who Jesus is, and he starts to use this metaphor of a wedding, and he, and he talks about how uh, with a wedding um, in, in, in John chapter 3, how there's the bride and the bridegroom and the bridegroom's friend, and he's basically saying, like, Jesus is his bridegroom, I'm the bridegroom's friend, and when the bridegroom's friend hears the, the voice of the bridegroom, that person is filled with joy. And he goes on to say, this is what's happening with Jesus. And he says, joy is mine and now complete because Jesus is here. John the Baptist says, joy is mine and it's now complete. And then he says, he must become greater and I must become less. Just looking at this metaphor John's using, what we'd find is that joy comes into our life when we recognize the presence of Christ. And the, and the presence of Christ increases, and we decrease. The source of our joy is God. But then it's also interesting because there's this other word that he, he uses. He says, the joy is mine, but then he also says that the joy is complete. The joy is complete. Other translations would say the joy is fulfilled. The joy is full. There's, a, there's this word that, that is associated with joy throughout Scripture that we see that starts here, this idea that joy and completeness, they come together. And we see this again in John chapter 15. As Jesus is, is talking, uh, he says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. And if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And I have told you this so that my joy may be in you 
and that your joy may be complete. That your joy may be complete. This desire Jesus has for his people is that, that your joy uh, wouldn't just be this, this thing that, that, that comes and it is a temporary emotion, but this thing that is fulfilled and complete. John 16, 24, Jesus is praying for his disciples. And he, and he prays that the disciples' grief would turn to joy. And he says, ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Joy comes from when we ask God for it. And your joy will be complete. And John chapter 17, he says, I say these things to you that you may have the full measure of joy within them. The full measure of joy. So there's this association between our joy and something that's complete, something that isn't just temporary, something that is fulfilled inside of us. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 15, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. This is Paul's prayer for God's people. Be filled with joy. And then 1 John 1, 4, the writer John says, we write these things to make your joy complete. When you see this repetition between this association between joy and complete, what we say is that, that God's desire for you is the fullness of joy. God's desire for your life is this fullness of joy. God has designed us to live lives full of joy. Joy that's not temporary. Joy that's not based on circumstances. But joy that is in touch with heaven. Something eternal inside of us. This is hard for me. I'm not a super joyful person, right? We, we often think maybe someone like Buddy the Elf, right? That's a joyful person. But what it, this joy that God gives us is a fruit of the Spirit. The source is the presence of God within us, which means that God's people live life very differently. We live life different. It doesn't mean that we're always happy. It's not this like you know, happy-go-lucky, out of touch with reality. But there's this inner strength that comes that's expressed, this delight in life. Because we know there's something eternal happening. The Christmas story is about good news of great joy. Because the source of joy is God, who has come in the form of a baby. The presence is here. A couple things about joy. So joy is best expressed in community. Joy is best expressed in community. And I love this. And, I, and I, feel this, I feel this here with this group of people when I'm with you Sunday morning, with you throughout the week, is that there's this joy that is best expressed in community. Kind of keeping up with this theme of joy and completeness in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul's writing and he says these words. He says, if, any, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others as well. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. It talks about this is what makes my joy complete when you live in community with each other, in harmony, and you live with an attitude of Christ Jesus. Joy is best expressed the context of community. The context of community. Second thing is that joy proclaims a drastic alternative to the world around us. Let me explain this. Joy, it proclaims a drastic alternative to the world around us. 
We talk about it's this inner strength that's not dependent on circumstances, which means that followers of Jesus do live life differently. Doesn't mean that we don't have sorrow. Doesn't mean that we don't have grief. Doesn't mean that we don't have anger. But what it means is that in the midst of all of the circumstances that we go through, this joy is something that is sustaining our lives. And so we process disappointments differently. We process hardships with perseverance. We process process disappointments with resilience. We see failure as redemptive. Joy is something that's this inner strength that is inside us. I heard one person saying that, that, uh, that joy is a protest to a culture of discord. As followers of Jesus, we live life differently because of the joy that we have. The joy that's this foundation inside of us. This joy that God desires for us. We proclaim a drastic alternative to the world around us. And I, I believe that we, uh, it's not hard to, to look around at the world and say that we live in a joyless, divisive, negative culture. For followers of Jesus, this is something that is this fruit of the spirit that's inside of us. We become good news in communities because we are people of joy. This old story uh, that took place in the USSR under Joseph Stalin, communism, uh, this, this atheistic government trying to stamp out uh, Christianity. They had created this league of the militant godless who were kind of in charge of stamping out Christianity. And uh, they would go around and, 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 you know, as they were persecuting uh, the faith, their leader was this man with this Russian name, Yamilian Yoroslavsky. Pretty sure I didn't pronounce that right. But it, he, he gets so frustrated as he's trying to persecute the church. And he says this of, of Christianity. He says, Christianity is like a nail. It's like a nail. The harder you strike it, the deeper it goes. Christianity is like a nail. The harder you strike it, the deeper it goes. And, and, it, and for him trying to stamp out the church uh, in, in Russia, the, the harder and harder he tried to do it, what he'd find is that there is this deeper and stronger faith that would emerge from the people. And I think that's true with how we interact with the circumstances in this world around us. We suffer, yes, but we suffer differently. We grieve, yes, but we grieve differently. We go through frustrations and we go through Mondays, yes, but we go through Mondays differently. Because of this joy that is inside of us, in the midst of suffering, we experience a deeper, we go deeper with God in our encounter with him. It allows us to go deeper with each other. Because there's something eternal that is going on. Something eternal. Uh, The Franciscan Richard War says this. Christian maturity is the ability to joyfully live in an imperfect world. I love that idea. Christian maturity is the ability to joyfully live in an imperfect world. This joy that we have as Christians is is that we proclaim a drastically different alternative to the world around us. We are people who are citizens of heaven. This joy is within us. And then lastly, this joy, this joy is perpetually looking forward. And I think this is why we do travel through life differently, is we're perpetually looking forward. We're looking to what God is doing in this world. We're looking forward to eternity. Eternity is this place uh, where we believe that God puts everything back together, where there's no more, uh, there, there are no more tears, there's no more pain, there's no more sickness. It's something that we look ahead to with hope and anticipation. 
Therefore, joy, perpetually looking forward, is, is, is intimately connected with this idea of hope. Hope is this holy anticipation that gives us power in the present moment because of what we believe our future is. I, I share this story sometimes. I, I, you know, I haven't really suffered a lot in life. Um, but I think one of the times I, I suffered was in college because I lived in Indiana and it was winter. <laughs> and I don't know, uh, I, I'm a desert rat. This is like as cold as it gets for me. Uh, earlier this week, I told Marcy, I'm like, I'm kind of ready for it to start heating up again. She's like, you're sick. You're terrible. I'm like, I know. I like it 110 degrees and swimming. Um, and so then I go to college in Indiana, and it's, it's freezing cold there, freezing cold. I mean, imagine like, um, you know, Mongolia or Siberia or something. Uh, and, and I remember being in college in Indiana, um, you know, I ended up meeting Marcy, and, and she was a couple years older than me, and so I ended up getting married really young. And after my junior year, I was engaged, and I remember, you know, trying to figure out, like, how am I going to provide for Marcy? And in fact, when we told my parents that we were getting married, my dad looked at Marcy and said, how do you plan to provide for my son? <laughs> Super awkward. And uh, have a couple jobs at college working at like Red Lobster. But one of the jobs I was working at was we had a natatorium. From Phoenix, I had no idea what a natatorium is. It's apparently an indoor pool. It's so cold outside that they have a pool that's inside, and it smells like chlorine really bad. And uh, I would clean the natatorium. And I remember uh, like the hours for this job, this on-campus job, were from like 10 o'clock at night till 1 in the morning. And I remember I would, I would walk, to, walk to the natatorium in the freezing cold Siberian air, and uh, I didn't think I was going to make it. And then my boss was terrifying. He looked like the, the old man from Home Alone that's like shoveling snow. <laughs> Macaulay Culkin thinks he's a murderer. That was like my boss. And I remember I would go there each night, and uh, well, it was probably like three or four nights a week, and clean the natatorium, and I would scrub uh, like the, the pool deck and, and clean even the bathrooms and um, try not to pass out from the chlorine smell in the natatorium. But I remember, like, I was doing that because we were, I was paying for our, our honeymoon. And I knew that summer, Marcy and I were going to go to the Bahamas. And, and so, like, I, I remember, like, I had this future in mind of, like, why I was doing this and, you know, making uh, minimum wage on campus, which is, like, four bucks or something like that. It was terrible. Um, but I, but I, I, I remember going there and being miserable, but having this thing I was looking forward to. <coughs> Uh, that, that, that gave me, like, a, an excitement about what I was doing. And, and I remember, like, thinking, like, you know, that's not really suffering, but in the midst of, like, how I, I wanted to go home and play video games with, you know, my buddies and not want to be there. Um, but I was looking forward to something. I was working towards something. Joy is perpetually looking forward, looking to the future, looking to the future. One of the best explanations of this it's a story that my dad used to tell about the John Rockefeller's sons. And some of you know John Rockefeller was this oil tycoon, made millions of dollars, and, you know, he's got like a big building named after him in New York. And his sons were set to inherit his fortune. And Rockefeller's sons, you know, knew that the rest of their life was taken care of, inherit this fortune. And, and John didn't want his sons to just inherit it without knowing what it was like to work for something. So he puts his sons to work in the oil rigs. He makes his sons work for two years, committed to be there working on these oil rigs all day long. And for two years, the sons did that. They would go out early in the morning, work on these oil rigs, and, and uh, get dirty, uh, get sore. It was tough on their body. It was hard work. It was a dirty job. And at the end of each day, 
sun would go down and they would kind of go to like the local, you know, local restaurant with their buddies and eat dinner and, and hang out. And that was kind of the rhythm for about two years. And when they were kind of getting close to the end of it, one of their friends over dinner asked the Rockefeller sons, what is it like for you, like being, being this millionaire son, being out here with us common folk, doing this dirty job where you're working all day, what is that like for you? One of the Rockefeller said, sons said, oh, it's, it's great. We love this. This is like the best time in our life, man. We just feel so alive. This is great. And, uh, oh, man, getting to know, getting to hang with the guys and, and, and work with our hands and get dirty. This is, this is wonderful. And one of the other friends said, well, of course you can say that. You can say that because you know that this is over at the end of two years. You can say that because you know this isn't the rest of your life. If the rest of your life was working on these oil rigs, if that was all you had to look forward to, you wouldn't be so happy about what this last two years have looked like. The Rockefeller said, yeah, that's right. Because I know I don't have to stay here. And and what happens in in this world is the story that we're a part of, where humanity is going, where our future is going because of Jesus, we don't have to stay. We're in the midst of this broken world, and we believe that God is coming back to restore and redeem and renew the creation around us. So we perpetually look forward to the future with joy. In the midst of our circumstances, we travel through life much differently because we have this future hope of where the world is going. The story of Christmas is joy coming into the world, God incarnate, the story of the baby Jesus who reveals what God is like to us, who points us towards this future. Hebrews, I'll end with this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says this. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And we fix our eyes on Jesus, author and perfecter of our faith, for who the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. The story that we're all a part of is that we fix our eyes on Jesus and the joy that is set before us, the things that this world throws at us, we can handle it. The things that the world does to us, we scorn the shame of that brokenness. With Jesus, we have a future. The story of Christmas is Jesus coming into the world and giving us that future. Good news of great joy. And that is for all of us, for all people. We're going to close today with the time of communion. Tim's going to come back up and we're going to sing this song. It's an old Christmas hymn. And the words of it are, O come Emmanuel. Emmanuel means that God is with us. Because of that, we can rejoice. And today, uh, as you're getting ready for Christmas and you're probably stressed out and you've got too many parties to go to and you're trying to figure out how to get all the presents taken care of, our hope is that, that this is a joyful time for you. That you're not robbed of joy because of circumstances. <laughs> that, that the joy is more than happiness, that it's this eternal hope that gives you power in the present moment. And it's this proclamation that there's this different world that is in play here that is eternal. Let's think of these things of joy as we move to our time of communion. As we take communion, let's remember this story.
Hebrews 2 kind of expresses what, what communion is all about. We end each week with these elements, uh, the sacraments. Um, we take a piece of bread, and that bread represents the incarnation. The bread represents the body of Christ, Jesus broken for us on the cross. We take juice that represents the blood that was shed on the cross. And this story that we're a part of is that the breaking open and the pouring out of Jesus brings about healing and restoration for all of our own brokenness. Life eternal. And we do this in remembrance of what God has done for us. We do this and proclaim it to the rest of the world. And we do it and we live differently because of what our future has to hold. When you're ready today, feel free to move to communion and we'll spend some time singing and then uh, Tim will dismiss us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for joy. Joy that's not just a temporary emotion. Joy that's not based on circumstances. or Joy that's not based on uh, relationships. Joy that's not based on our jobs. Joy that is based on your presence. You're the source of this fruit of the Spirit, Lord. Lord, we just ask that even in the midst of difficult circumstances like a nail, we would just go deeper with you every time that we're hit. Lord, that we'd be in touch with this, uh, this gift of eternity, of joy. Lord, that we would experience you in new ways this Christmas. Lord, that you would bring us hope and peace and joy. Lord, we acknowledge that this is good news of great joy. It's for all of us. Today, Lord, we just ask that you would <coughs> reveal yourself more and more, that we'd have a, a, a meaningful encounter with you as we head to communion. We give you this time. In your son's name we pray. Amen.